0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Rebecca Zitlow, author of the book The Forgotten Emancipator, James Mitchell Ashley and the Ideological Origins of Reconstruction. Rebecca, welcome to New Books Network.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here. Well,
0: we're Glad to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
2: Um, sure. I grew up in southern Indiana. My father was a professor. My mother was involved in local politics, always very interested in politics. Um, I went to college in New York City. I went to law school and then <clears throat> I I worked for a few years as a legal services lawyer in the south side of Chicago in a very um, poor, one of the poorest neighborhoods in the country. Almost all my clients were black, many of whom had come up from Mississippi in the great migration and then i became a law professor um and uh but that experience of my time in um practice and also growing up and interested in politics um, has really um had an impact on my uh, scholarly interest as a constitutional law professor
0: i think that comes across very well in your book because it is it, it does contain this fascinating intersection of law and politics and shows how just how you know tightly interwoven the two are and how you really had to think of them in tandem. What was it that led you to write this book?
2: Um well, I started thinking about this. So my interest in poverty law and racial justice sort of combined uh to I started paying attention to the Reconstruction Amendments, the Reconstruction era, which is of course the post Civil War era when um uh, we amended our Constitution to abolish slavery and involuntary servitude and make rights enforceable against state governments, and what I, I what really uh, became interested in the 13th Amendment, which is the amendment which abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, because it does contain elements of both race, um, <coughs> racial equality, uh, a promise of racial equality for the freed former slaves, and also economic empowerment for workers. Um, so, um, um, as for James Ashley, there's a kind of a fun story uh, as, with that regard. I was at a, a conference on um, Reconstruction uh, in Philadelphia, and a friend of mine from law school, a very close friend, said to me, "Oh, if you're interested in the Reconstruction Congress, you should learn about my great-great-granddaddy." And he pulled out a book and he showed me this picture of James Ashley, and I had never heard of Ashley before, and um, because Law professors mostly, when they when they uh, write about Reconstruction, focus on the Fourteenth Amendment. That's the amendment that um, uh, it has some rights in it: uh, due process, equal protection, privileges or immunities of citizenship that are enforceable against state governments. And that's mostly what the courts, the uh, the courts, including the Supreme Court, has enforced in sort of trying to enforce the promise of Reconstruction. They don't. They haven't uh, until recently really paid that much attention to the Thirteenth Amendment. And James Ashley, he was tied to the Thirteenth Amendment. He was a radical member of the um, uh, Reconstruction Congress. He was uh, anti-slavery from the time he was very young, a teenager. He was involved in the Underground Railroad. He. Um, um, ran for Congress at an at a at a pretty young age. One of the founders of the Republican Party, and all along he was extremely radical in terms of both his interest in racial justice and and um, and economic justice. And so I just became more and more interested in him. I I did you know started doing research and found that he was really a very important member of Reconstruction Congress that most people had not heard of, other than you know, historians of the Reconstruction era.
0: Yeah, there does seem to be a, a, a real uh, shame that he his contribution ha- has really been o- overlooked. And you, you point out that the the reason for this is that a lot of his personal papers were destroyed prior to his uh, death, whether uh, by him or act deliberately or accidentally, you, you, you say we, we can't say for certain. Your, your, your approach to understanding his life, though, I, I thought was especially fascinating because what you provide your readers is basically this uh, study of his ideas and how they fit into the thought of his times. And I thought it was especially illuminating because you, you show what brought Ashley to that point, not just in terms of a, you know, a dislike of slavery, but you situate it within the intellectual and legal milieu of the period. You're talking about issues like free labor. You're talking about you know, the, the issues of anti-slavery constitutionalism. And and, and and not just what these ideas were, but then you set it up for how Ashley contributes to them over the course of his career.
2: Yeah, um, we don't ha- know very much about Ashley's private life uh, because uh, his papers were destroyed. Uh, there's a few letters here and there, but we really don't know that much. But what we do know is the public record of what he said and what he did, uh, both when he was running for Congress and then when he was in Congress, his... Uh, uh, and and that is a and that public record. It's what's especially important for um, understanding what the Constitution means. It's actually more important than whatever he thought, you know, um, uh, and whatever he's told his friends or whatever. Because this is what he was saying out on the stump, right? And this is what he was saying, you know, what the Thirteenth Amendment means, uh, what it means, why slavery should be abolished. Um, and I think. And, and that really helps us to understand what the Constitution means and also um, as you said I'm really interested in how how those ideas developed um, within the po- within the politics of the movement the anti-slavery movement and also um, both the anti-slavery movement and then the workers the burgeoning workers rights movement in uh, United States. So one of the things that distinguishes Ashley's from some of the other members of the Reconstruction Congress that at least law professors know more about, such as um, um, John Bingham, uh, the the chief author of the 14th Amendment, is that Ashley was a former Democrat. He had been part of the Democratic Party and uh, the sort of the popular worker-focused populism of, of President Andrew Jackson, and that was an important part of the way he thought about the Constitution and the way he thought about slavery as being ju- not just about racial oppression, but actually about oppression of workers. And so, um, and that really is very apparent in in um, in his what he said publicly.
0: I was wondering if you could start us off by by talking a bit about what you mean by anti-slavery constitutionalism, because as you explained, there is a lot going on there that really is important when we talk about the Ashley's involvement with constitution, constitutional law in Congress. What did you mean by that phrase? And, and what was that thinking of the time, given that you had a, you know, a, a, a legal culture, a a, a a lot of legal assumptions that, that about how slavery was something that was, you know, regarded as guaranteed in law?
2: Yes. Um, and that's actually something uh, historians are talking a lot about these days. The question of, you know, the extent to which um, these, our original Constitution was a pro-slavery document. Um, and uh, those who argue that it was a pro-slavery document, they cite to um, uh, Madison's notes from the Constitutional Convention, James Madison, where he talks about the fact that they needed to make certain compromises in order to protect slavery. They, they point to uh, uh, measures in the Constitution, such as, of course, the Fugitive Slave Clause. Um, uh, with the three-fifths clause, which counted slaves as three-fifths of a person, um, etc., a, cl- a part of the Constitution that's ban- um, prohibited Congress from banning the importation of slaves from from uh, until a certain date. Um, but and 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 I think and as 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 we when we look and see what happened, of course, is that. Slave, there was slavery at the time of the founding, and then it continued to exist through, uh, through the Civil War. But there were also, and, and, and within, the anti, within the movement, the anti-slavery movement, there were two camps. There were the Garrisonian abolitionists who said um, the Constitution is completely and utterly flawed. I don't have the quote in front of me right now, but it's something like a compact with the devil and a deal in hell is what uh, Garrison called the Constitution. Um, but then there were this other group of of, of and, and and Garrison said he, we shouldn't even be involved in politics at all because the entire system is flawed and corrupt. But then there were other people who said, wait, we need to get involved in politics because that's the only way we're going to end slavery. And they and look at there's a lot in this Constitution that looks like it's against slavery. So for example, the the due process clause prohibits the taking of life liberty um, uh, without uh, due process of law. There's a privileges or immunities clause that says um, that uh, states, or they argued states could recognize free blacks as, uh, as citizens and they would have protections as citizens. Um, the declaration of independence with those promise of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so, um, and they argued both in courts but mostly in the, um, in the political realm that the Constitution was actually anti-slavery. And they pointed out that the the so-called fugitive slave clause doesn't mention slaves, nor does any other provision, including the three-fifths clause. The word slave was not in the Constitution until the 13th Amendment, with its language that abolishing slavery. And so they said, if you just look at the text of the Constitution, you can see, it doesn't say anything about slavery, it doesn't protect slavery, and there are parts in it that contain Protections for rights that um, uh, that mean that it's that it's unconstitutional. Now they made some of these arguments in courts and they lost, but they made these arguments in in the political realm, and they gained a lot of traction in terms of support for the anti-slavery movement. And uh, in fact, the um, even the the platform of the Republican Party had a very moderate version. Of anti-slavery constitutionalism, but it was very influential during those days—the um, the 1840s the, the uh, and 1850s, you know, leading up uh, up to the Civil War.
0: When does Ashley start to uh, speak uh, or, or or write about these ideas in a way that suggests that he's embraced them? Is it during that period, in the 1840s and 1850s, or is it reflected more in his later
2: writings? Oh, definitely in the 1850s. I mean, he, well, we have to, he was born, we think, we're not sure exactly when, but we think it's 1824. So he was, you know, he wasn't even, um, um, really came, came an adult, right, in the late 1840s, early 1850s. And he, from, he, he was giving uh, speeches where he was arguing that slavery was completely unconstitutional from, or, from early days. One argument that I didn't mention earlier that was actually very important to Ashley was that he argued that slavery violated natural law, um, principles of natural law, and that, um, and, and that those principles should be enforceable through law. Um, uh, so uh, uh, he, was, he was also motivated by his religious beliefs. Um, he thought it was completely immoral. Slavery was completely immoral. That makes him more like the Garrisonians, but he, as I said, he he got involved in politics. Uh, he ran for office. He's, he, he really got involved in 1856, where he was campaigning for another, uh, man, uh, uh, someone else who was running for Congress, um, and he gave these speeches for these very broad views of rights uh, back then in uh, 1856. This is sort of the first written record that we have of this.
0: I thought your discussion of, of anti-slavery constitutionalism was really interesting, but I was especially fascinated by the fact that you had this discussion about free labor because free labor is something that, you know, it, you know it, we, it's associated with, with, with the Jacksonian movement, with the Democratic Party, and it, it's something that I had not really seen as well developed in terms of how, you know, anti-slavery ideas stem from that. Until you explain how it breaks down and and how Ashley embodies it, because as you point out, and you've already referenced, he starts out as a Democrat. He doesn't start out as a Whig or a Free Soiler or a Republican. He starts out as a Democrat, which is the party that during this period is increasingly becoming more of a pro-slavery or or uh, uh, anti-slavery, shall we say, uh, party. So, So- could perhaps, could you explain a bit what free labor was and and how ashley drew from that a anti, a critique against slavery especially when there were so many democrats who were very pro free labor but who or uh, or labor theory of value but who never really connected that with opposition to slavery
2: yeah um well so the fact is that slavery was a system of exploitation of labor um, it was, of course, also uh, extremely uh, racially. Uh, I mean, in, in our our country was actually pretty unique in terms of the racialized nature of slavery and the cruelty of treatment of slaves in part because of the dehumanization, you know, the use of, of um, racial racism and white supremacy to dehumanize people who were enslaved. But it is also true that this, what, that all of this ideology contributed to the exploitation of labor, um, and uh, uh, people, and, and 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 at the same time, in the North, we have this evolution, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, where at the turn of the, you know, in 1800, our our uh, economy was primarily. Um, Artisanal uh, farmers, um, people that uh, at least could expect they would hope someday that they might own their own farm. Over time, they start to realize that they, you know, that the only work they can find is at a factory, is for wages, and um, and they start to make, especially the the factory workers start to make a connection. Not all of them, so, as you point out, many of the Democrats. Uh, were pro-slavery, and many of the people in the labor movement were not not interested in slavery, or at least they said, we need to solve the problem of the worker here before we worry about the slaves in the South. But some people recognized that there was a whole continuum here of unfree labor, and that as long as, for example, in the North, um there was a practice of indentured servitude that was extremely common in the early in the colonial days and the early years of our country including into the 19th century where people were bound to their masters for terms of years and um and had uh um uh couldn't leave their master over disputes over wages conditions of work and such a, such and these some people started to make this connection that they realized that the existence of slavery um Sort of brought down the uh, the whole. I'm trying to say it was sort of lowered the bottom in terms of both conditions and wages of workers throughout the country. The fact that there were enslaved people meant it justified practices such as indentured servitude and and you know treat. Um, really poor treatment of workers um, in in all employment situations. And so that there began um, and and there grew over time an anti-slavery movement within the labor movement. And one of the great uh, stories is of the Lowell Mills, the women that worked at the the cotton mills um, in um, Lowell, Massachusetts. Very strongly they signed anti-slavery petitions they argued that they were wage slaves, so they, they identified with, with slaves in the South, but they also were against slavery anywhere. And this began to spread. It was spread to um, uh, uh, Ohio. There were a, a lot of people, and they were the ones, of course, that, that influenced Ashley.
0: So Ashley himself... Is a uh, not a a wage laborer over the course of his career, although he he has a remarkably varied pre political career. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain some of the things he did and, and how they inform our understanding of his perspective on labor and slavery in American society.
2: Well, that's a good point because he he um, uh, he grew up. He didn't have an awful lot of money. He didn't come from a wealthy family. But he aspired to be kind of an entrepreneur. So he he um, he grew up in southern Ohio. Uh, he he moved to uh, uh, Toledo, Ohio, in his early twenties because, in part, because he had been involved in the Underground Railroad, and and there was um, um, it was kind of a dangerous thing to do, and there was more anti-slavery sentiment in Toledo, but also because I think he thought he might have some economic opportunities. So he tried to open a pharmacy the pharmacy failed, he tried to uh, work as a a journalist and that didn't really work out either. So he actually kind of found his career in in politics, honestly. Uh, He wasn't uh, really successful at anything else until he started getting involved in politics. And so maybe some of his struggles and uh, economic struggles were part of the reason why he identified uh, with workers, that he had, you know, he, he, he he and and many of um you know the former democrats that joined the republican party and that um you know formed a, a wing of the democrat of the of kind of the radical wing of the republican party they saw slavery as this oligarchy a feudal feudal system uh, where there was a lord um you know presiding over the the the, the slaves um and they thought that was fundamentally un-American. Uh, they also, I forgot to mention earlier, but they cited the Republican, uh, the, the clause that guarantees a Republican form of government. So I think that, you know, it's clear that Ashley identified not with the Lord, right, but mm-hmm. with the workers that were working for the Lord. And maybe it was partly because of his sort of economic struggles early in his life. But that's pure speculation because I really, we really don't know.
0: You, you describe his uh, immer- his entry into politics, and it was very fascinating because he seemed to be there at these very critical moments, and he connected with the right people. He connected with Salmon Chase, who was this rising political force in Ohio, very staunchly anti uh, slavery. He attends one of the Lincoln Douglas debates, which I, I just thought was such a fascinating detail. Yeah, a- a- and then he's there. He he he's, he witnesses the. Uh, the the trial of John Brown. I mean, he, 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 he seems to be, uh, you know, at at these points at which you're, you're really seeing history turning and he's really has this interesting connection with these very key players. What ultimately leads him to pursue a political career and and how does he get in, how does he get into office?
2: Well, um, well, I think that it appears that well, he was, he was, when he was young, They were he was very close friends with a family, a Quaker family, very strongly anti-slavery, who also had a really um, good library. And Ashley would read all these treatises, anti-slavery treatises and other. uh, And so that's what he really got him interested in it. And I I agree with you. It's amazing how much he traveled Mm -hmm. back in those days, because he traveled to he traveled to Washington, D.C., um, and he was there at the inauguration of Will, Will, William Henry Harrison. He was, went to the 1844 Democratic Convention, at which um, uh, he, was, he left disgusted because um, uh, the, the convention uh, uh, nominated the pro-slavery uh, Van Buren. And, uh, I'm sorry, the, yeah. Polk. Yes, thank you. <laughs> James Polk, instead of Van Buren from, from New York, he um he uh he traveled to to he saw the Lincoln Douglas debate, he campaigned for Lincoln. He went to uh the very first convention where the Republican Party was founded, and as you mentioned, he he became a protege early on of Salmon and Chase, and that was crucial to, to his success, making connections and such. But he really, really got out. He really um um and, and so when he made all these connections, and I think that he really impressed people with his, uh, both his personality, his speaking style. And they said, well, you know, you should, you should run for Congress yourself. And so, and so he did. And he won the first time that he ran in 1858.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
0: And it was really interesting to think about how he gets into politics. I mean, he only serves in Congress for a decade. But yes. it's such an important decade and you, you you point out that uh he, he's elected in 1858 but at that time uh the congress in which he served wouldn't meet for another year so he has a year to get there so he doesn't really start until 1859 and 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 you have all these events going on at that time you're on the eve of the election of 1860 you have uh the election take place you have uh the the response to the election what was his response to uh what was going on nationally as the debate on slavery was really reaching a, a, a boiling point?
2: Well, he really understood that it was, you know, that the debate was reaching a boiling point. As you mentioned, he went to the um, uh, the uh, trial of John Brown and he wrote back a report that um, I, if I could get, let's say, sixty eighty eight, where he basically said you know, this is a harbinger of things to come. Um, you know, oh, here we go. Men may may talk as they will, but I tell you this: there is a smold- smoldering volcano burning beneath the crust, ready to burst forth at any moment, and an enemy to peace of almost every hearthstone is lurking at the heart of the apparently submissive lashed slave. And uh, and it basically predicted, you know, that the that the civil war was going to come. Uh, Gets into Congress, as you said, he starts in Congress in 1859, and of course, next year, um, Lincoln is elected, and and from the very beginning, Ashley, I think in part because of all the campaigning he did for so many other uh, Republicans, he's very well liked, he's very well respected. He's elected to the Committee on the Territories, and at that time, um, the territory, slavery in the territories was the number one issue. It's really the issue that that um, you know. Was sort of the spark sparked the conflagration, disputes over slavery in the territories, and um, um, and he was poised and ready. And as soon as the war broke out, he said, "This is this war is going to end slavery," which wasn't what people thought at the time, mm-hmm. right? And that's not the way Lincoln framed it. Uh, it was a war to save the Union, of course, to protect the Union. Uh, but from the very beginning, Ashley uh, did everything he could to make sure that the war would actually bring about the end of slavery.
0: So could you describe some of the measures that he was supporting and also how he was dealing with the fact that while he was convinced the war was going to end slavery, that was not the position that the Republican president in the White House was was adopting on it? And how did he deal with the fact that he was getting that resistance from his own party leader?
2: Well, and so there was always a lot of tension between Ashley and other radical members such as Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, and the Republican Party, and Lincoln, um, because Lincoln really was moderate. Lincoln, uh, for example, one of the examples, and this also was a a difference between Ashley and Salmon Chase, Ashley argued that slavery was unconstitutional everywhere, but Lincoln and Chase argued only that Congress had the power to prohibit slavery in territories, but not in the existing states. Um, and and so, um, uh, uh, so measures that Ashley proposed including included um, supporting uh, General Benjamin Butler at the very beginning of the war when slaves uh, escaped across northern lines. Um, some of the Union generals just returned the slaves to their masters, but General Butler said no, your contraband of war—we're confiscating you from the Confederates—and you're you're now free. And Ashley supported that. Eventually, over a couple of years later, Congress um, enacted a law that authorized that practice. But from the very beginning, uh, Ashley saw this as a very important. Um, and uh, in fact, he traveled to the battlefield to meet Butler, and he saw this as a very important development. Uh, another thing he did in 1862, which was very early on the war. And it was very not clear who was going to win. Ashley um, introduced the first what he called, you know, reconstruction measure. What would we do once we win the war to end these slave states? And the reconstruction um, his bill would have said that all the southern states that seceded were now conquered territories. The federal government could do whatever it wanted, and what they would do would be end slavery, confiscate land, Give land to free slaves. Give voting rights to freed slaves. Um, and so it was all very, very sort of um, um, sort of ahead of its time. Uh, eventually, s- some of this happened right during the after the war during Reconstruction, uh, including voting rights. Though, of course, never uh, never the confiscation of land.
0: I, that that takes us a little uh, ahead of 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 the story. I will get to that in a little bit, but. So okay. he, he's adopting this, you know, he, he's putting these very radical measures forward as legislation. And the legislation doesn't really go anywhere. How does he then become tied to or involved with the passage of the 13th Amendment? And, and maybe you can start by setting up the context, explaining how it was that the 13th Amendment came to be a, a real possibility in, in Congress and, and, and uh, nationally.
2: Yeah so a, a couple of things leading up to that one was um the abolition of slavery in the district of columbia and that up up until and during and the beginning of the civil war slavery was still legal in the district of columbia which is of course where the capital was um and ashley was one of the uh, as as his position at that time of chair of committee on the territories uh, one of the people that spearheaded this effort to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia, um, and uh, but that was um, the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia included uh, payments for uh, to to the slave owners um, for the slaves, which was something that Ashley strongly opposed, but saw as understood it was necessary in order to get it in across into Congress, right? Mm-hmm. But then the next thing, of, of course, that happens is the Emancipation Proclamation. And when uh, once uh, Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation as a war effort, saying that slaves in conquered territories would be free, that makes the Civil War really into a war to end slavery. And so then taking the next step in abolishing slavery everywhere seemed a sort of natural progression from that. That's at least uh, what Ashley and and his and the other people uh, you know that supported the uh, the 13th amendment argued, um, you know, it's, we, this, this horrible institution of slavery is the only reason why the Confederacy exists and survives. Um, and it, it, it it has to go and our country can't, can't continue, uh, with any legal slavery. And so of course the 13th amendment abolishes slavery everywhere in the, everywhere in the country. And Ashley was one of the first, he was the first person to um, to propose the 13th Amendment, Uh, although the language he used wasn't what ended up in the bill. That language was from Lyman Trumbull, also a former Democrat in um, from Illinois in the Senate.
0: So the amendment initially goes through the Senate and they ratify it, and then it goes to the House. And this is something that some listeners might be familiar with because it's uh, fictionalized in the movie Lincoln. And, and as you point out there, you know, Ashley is a character in it, but he's misrepresented. It, it's, it's a great performance by David Costable, but it's, yes. he, he's, he's portrayed as having a different position than was the case. What was his role in getting the amendment through the House, and how does he go about uh, achieving its uh, passage?
2: and that's where he really becomes an ally of Abraham Lincoln because Lincoln ran for pre- for president that fall on the platform of ending slavery as did Ashley many others did not because even in the in the fall of 1864 it was not clear which way the the war was going to go but they both did and when he was elected Lincoln took this as a mandate at, as did Ashley and the North had the Union had started winning battles, and things were looking better. Um and of course, uh, we're we're we coming on the um, the the eventual victory of the Union in uh, in the following spring. so but it still was going to take a lot of work to get the um, amendment through Congress. And Ashley and Lincoln worked together to lobby. The reluctant members of Congress, and that's that's portrayed as, as I say not accurately, but portrayed mm-hmm. in the in in the in the movie. Um, and I think of it as if I if you know about the his the um, how the uh, eight, 1964 Civil Rights Act got through Congress and passed the filibuster with uh, uh, Senator Hubert Humphrey working with uh, President Lyndon Johnson. It was the same kind of thing. They were working hand in hand. They were. Making whatever arguments that they could, um, there were certainly some uh, some log rolling type you know promises made um, at the time and, um, um, and and Ashley but he you know they got the votes. and Ashley presided over the vote uh, in Congress in January of eighteen sixty five in the House of Representatives he gave a speech explaining what he believed the 13th amendment was about and the reason for it. And then, uh, and then, you know, of course they voted, uh, uh, the house of representatives voted, uh, in favor of it. And, um, and the rest is history.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The rest is indeed history, but then, and you go on to explain, you know, that's not the end of it. It's not, it's not enough simply to end slavery. He then, with the, uh, uh, passage, you have the end of the war closely upon the falling upon the heels of that and then you enter the period of reconstruction. And as you've already explained, he has been working uh, he's been thinking about reconstruction. he's been proposing legislation before we there was even really a name for it. So what is his attitude about the uh, about uh, the emancipation of the slaves post ratification and what is he doing in Congress with regard to reconstruction?
2: Well, the most important thing to Ashley was that the former slaves should have voting rights. He really and truly believed that the only way that Reconstruction was gonna work um, was for former slaves to be full 100% citizens and to be able to vote on the people that would represent them. As you mentioned, the 13th Amendment alone was not sufficient the southern states did ratify because they knew they, they just didn't have a choice. But they resisted the end of slavery in every way. Uh, southern state legislatures enacted laws that, known as black codes, uh, which um, deprived freed slaves of all basic rights, including the right to contract, required them to enter into essentially indentured servitude, you know, long-term contracts with their masters over they would, which they would have no control so, uh, you know, in contain provisions that if black people were were walking on the highway and if they weren't working, that they could be arrested and, and, um, and forced to work. Um, and so it, that was even though there was the 13th Amendment. So it required at the very least legislation to enforce the 13th Amendment. So the 1866 Civil Rights Act really directed at those black codes, making it clear that um, freed slaves had fundamental rights, including the right to contract, the same as white people that uh, really was geared at protecting the rights of those freed slaves and, and especially their right to engage in uh, in contracts for their labor on fair terms with their former masters or with other people, because, of course, they weren't really all that interested in working for their <laughs> former masters. But a lot of them ended up having to work, you know, on the same, same uh, plantations for their for their former masters. But then um, uh, uh, the next thing is, as I say, uh, Ashley and the other radicals, such as Thaddeus Stevens, who's, who's portrayed um, in that movie that we were talking about as a real radical that he was, and Ashley was like him, they thought the most important thing, uh, as I said, was the right to vote. And Ashley went out to California. He gave speeches in favor of his vision of Reconstruction, where Blacks would be treated as 100% equal citizens with the right to vote. And that's really what he focused on um, the rest of his time in Congress with regard to Reconstruction. And yet at the height
0: of Reconstruction, just as Congress is starting to take it over, Ashley loses re-election. Why does he lose re-election at this point? And to what what degree is is it uh, connected to his uh, prominence in the Reconstruction debate.
2: Well, he um, he had over the years. He was very uh, he had very strong beliefs. He had where uh, it was very outspoken. He defended some people, including you know powerful people in his district, especially the editor of the uh, the paper, the Toledo Blade, that uh, constantly published ne- negative articles about him, and he. Um, um, and he also got involved in the failed effort to impeach President Johnson. So um, uh, Lincoln was assassinated, Johnson, a, a you know, a pro-slavery, uh, well, not pro-slavery, but um, a Southerner who wanted to allow the South to return to pretty much what it had been before becomes president, and uh, and it makes uh, uh, people and it and it just um, uh, Johnson tried to impede every single Reconstruction measure. He 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 vetoed every bill that was passed through Congress, including the 1866 Civil Rights Act. Um, and 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 Ashley is one of the leaders in the first effort to impeach Johnson, and he gives, goes a little overboard. Uh, in terms of the allegations he's making against Johnson, uh, it's sort of unclear. And his biographer tries to say, well, he didn't really argue this, but it appears there's some evidence that that Ashley thought that Johnson had something to do with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and um, uh, so that hurt his credibility. Um, and also, he's just he's continues to be extremely radical and around that 67, 68. Uh, congress is starting to become a little more moderate in terms of what it's expecting from reconstruction um and ashley like stevens still extremely radical sort of um they pr- really too radical for the republican party by
0: 1868 now it- I, can I, I would understand. I would have understood had you ended the book around that point, but you then talk about his post-congressional career and his post-congressional life. And I thought it was interesting because you take a lot of the ideas that you see in Ashley's congressional advocacy and you show how they play out both in his uh, subsequent time as governor of Montana territory and then also in his uh, subsequent business career. I was wondering if you could perhaps I- I- explain uh, in In a bit more detail, uh, what I'm talking about here. But also, what do you feel that reveals about Ashley himself as a person and his and his beliefs?
2: Well, so we were talking earlier about the the free labor uh, strand of the anti-slavery movement and its and its potential for um for all workers, so that abol- abolishing slavery and involuntary servitude would raise the floor for all workers and and help all workers. And um, in the early measures of Reconstruction, the ones Ashley was behind, the 13th Amendment, the 66 Civil Rights Act, the 67 Anti Peonage Act, really reflects that view that is, this is about both race equality and economic equality. And after Ashley uh, leaves Congress, um, he continues to advocate for that, uh, that vision, what he called the vision of the old guard. Um, and he he's appointed uh, a governor of Montana, where he speaks out against the Chinese system of coolie labor, where Chinese immigrants were brought to the United States to work uh, to build the railroads and were treated really um, uh, like indentured servants, almost like slaves. And and Ashley speaks out against this. So um, so he continues to make these these free labor arguments. And the reason why I thought it was important to talk about this was because. As I said, in Congress, uh, uh, the Republican party, party becomes more moderate, becomes more pro-business uh, over the years. Uh, very much in fa- uh, 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 focused on developing the West, building railroads, et cetera, and and be- and, and and over the years becomes the the pro part the the pro-business party that we recognize today. What Ashley Ashley what Ashley did what Ashley's tried to continue to do, uh, sort of is an example example of the road not taken you know um if they had if the party had really continued really uh to um to focus on enforcing both workers rights and 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 rights against racial equality one of the things that uh the labor movement oh, and and actually loses his job pretty quickly as uh governor of montana because it turns out a lot of the people who lived in montana were former confederates that had moved up there when things started to go badly in the war and they they didn't like him at all. Uh so uh they complained and 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 President Grant actually removed him. Um uh he comes back and he builds uh he builds a business. And this time it's fairly successful at least through um, uh, in the early years and that's building a railroad between um Ann Arbor, Michigan and Toledo and that at one point goes out as far as to Chicago. And I can say that having lived in Toledo for uh, many years, I sure wish that railroad was still there. It (laughs) would have been really nice, supposed to go up to Ann Arbor and to go to Chicago. Anyway, um, uh, he starts to advocate the uh, the sort of one wing of the labor movement, sort of labor republicanism, which was um, this view that workers should be part of the ownership of the means of production and be, and be involved in the running of businesses. Um, uh, And Ashley gave to his workers um, uh, the kind of benefits that uh, that we sort of expect or we used to expect from work today, such as a pension. Um, uh, And so basically has progressive policies towards his workers um, as, as the owner. Now he's on the other side, right? Now he is uh, the owner of a business, uh, but he's still using progressive policies towards his workers.
0: It, it is interesting to, to see how you know how deeply felt that uh, he that his views were that he was willing to put them into practice, even at a time when nobody would have really, most people wouldn't have held it against him if he had gone the more uh, you know the the more traditional capitalist route of you know, you know treating workers like. Uh, parts that could be exchanged and sending in strike breakers and Pinkertons and whatnot. And, and, yeah. and, and, and yet he remains true to that, you know, up through the point where he retires. And, and you uh, have that, that, that uh, the, the, you know, the, I thought that the, the part at the end where you talk about how he's honored by, uh, by African-Americans for what he did is as a real uh, statement of, of just how, not just how he was viewed by many of his peers, but also that contrast between how, at the end of his life, he you know he has no less than a person than Frederick Douglass lauding him, and yet how that contrast with what you point out at the beginning of your book about how he's how he subsequently then ends up getting forgotten.
2: Yeah, um, it's a, I think it's a very moving scene. Uh, there was a, a man named Benjamin Arnett who was the head of the Afro American League of Tennessee. Who happened, uh, he was a um, United, um, I'm sorry, um, a- AMC, um, Af-
0: uh, AME.
2: Af- African, Me- AME, thank you, African Methodist Episcopal Church, right? That was formed in the midst of the uh, 20th, 19th century. And uh, and actually, one of the things that Ashley did, um, he helped to found that church in Toledo, which was an amazing thing. Um, and that was in back in the uh, in the early days, in his early life. That was an amazing thing for a white person to do, to be involved in that sort of social movement and help to found a church like that. Um, so anyway, Benjamin Arnett was at the, he was at the, um, the vote on the 13th Amendment and Ashley really impressed him. And years later, uh, we're getting ready for the Columbian Exposition in Chicago and Arnett contacts uh, Ashley and says, we wanna do, we wanna um, publish a book of your speeches. And we want to honor you at this exposition. And so they uh, Ashley sent him his speeches. They published them, and they honored him on a day at the exposition that was um, uh, that was devoted to uh, to African Americans. Something like I think it was nine thousand people were at the presentation. Um, uh, this was in eighteen ninety two. So it was many years later, it was the year before Ashley died, that he got this. Um, And, and as you mentioned, Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass wrote the, um, the introduction in which he, um, he calls him, um, one of the true supporters of liberty, one of the most important people, figures in the anti-slavery movement, um, which is an incredible tribute. And so, uh, and so that legacy is there, but what happens? So then, you know, the next question is why is he forgotten? And as you were saying, and, um, the answer is that the history of Reconstruction is, is has been politicized as Reconstruction itself. As you know, you're a historian. Uh, uh, history can be politicized, and that's especially true when it comes to the history of Reconstruction. So in the early 20th century, the principal school of history, known as the Dunning School, was dominated by Southern historians who sort of wanted to rewrite the history of slavery and Reconstruction to make it sound better for the South. To justify uh, essentially the uh, the, ex- the continued exploitation of black labor through the Jim Crow system and the and the treatment of blacks as second class citizens, and they just refer to the the um, members of the Reconstruction Congress in the most derogatory terms. I mean, that's where we get the idea of General Grant, uh, U- Ulysses Grant, as being a drunkard who didn't really know what he was doing. Really blasphemous stuff, and um, and. And Ashley just kind of drops out then. In the 18 Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say in the sixties and the seventies, there's a whole new movement of of historians such as Michael S. Benedict and Eric Foner that start to re to to um rewrite the history of Reconstruction consistently what, what with what really happened there. And that's when we start getting, you know, some recognition of the uh members of the Reconstruction Congress. Uh, but now they still don't get nearly enough recognition.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
2: Um, sure. I'm working on a couple of projects that, that sort of build on this. One is a sort of a multi-article project about what the right to contract and the right to free labor mean for workers since, um, since the 13th Amendment established that right. Um, and in particular, I'm working on a, a piece about the gig, econ- gig economy, workers now, and how all, what this all this all this means to our current economy, our labor economy. And I'm also working on a, a project about uh, fugitive slaves and their impact on this whole story that we were talking about. As constitutional actors, um, they played a, a, a crucial role as catalysts for constitutional change and inspiring people like Ashley. Um, um, to get involved in in the anti-slavery movement. Um, And so that's the other thing I'm working on.
0: Well, those both sound like excellent projects. I wish you the best with them. Thank you. Uh, Rebecca Zitlow, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
2: Thank you. You too.